0: This evening we're going to look at Abraham and David. The Apostle Paul, he spent considerable time explaining the righteousness of God that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that over the weeks. And now we're coming to examples. Examples in verse 4. Paul has been teaching that All are under sin, Jews and Gentiles alike. As such, no one will be justified by God or before God through his own works of the law. In fact, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, far from justifying you, exposes your sin, it exposes your guilt. No matter how good and law abiding... You imagine yourself to be. The fact is that we've all failed miserably to keep God's laws which are all about loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. This is what God's laws are about, love. Makes you wonder why people hate God and they hate his laws. It's because of sin. It's because we got desperately wicked hearts. And that is why people say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Speaking about the Lord and about his Christ, the Lord Jesus. You do well to confess your failure to keep God's laws and you do well to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ believing that when he came into the world, he perfectly fulfilled those laws on your behalf when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as he bear away your sins in his own body. All who are trusting in Jesus are acceptable to God in him, not in their own self-righteousness, but in the righteous, righteousness of God, that comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, what we're looking at tonight, Paul gives an example of someone who was justified by faith and not by the works of the law. And the person that he set forth as an example is none other than Abraham, who is held in the highest regard by Jews, but not just by Jews, by Gentiles as well. For example, Muslims. They hold Abraham in high regard. Also, David is named in chapter 4 as someone who wrote about the righteousness of God apart from works of the law. Like Abraham, David was and still is held in very high esteem by the Jews. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 3 again. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, have found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness? There seems to be some disagreement between Bible commentators as to whether those words as pertaining to the flesh in verse 1 belong with what goes before or what goes after. It's certainly true to say that Abraham is the father as pertaining to the flesh of those who are of Jewish descent. After all, he was a patriarch of Israel. However, that's not what verse 1 is about. What Paul is doing is contending with people whose boast is in their works of the law and he is about to show that even Abraham, who is described as a friend of God in James chapter 2 and verse 23, did not find righteousness according to the flesh. In other words, he did not find righteousness as a result of his own works. If Abraham was justified by works of the law, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had any reason to boast. Sorry, he would have had every reason to boast. But he wasn't justified by his works of the law. That's given to us in verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That plainly tells us that even the righteousness of the greatly revered Abraham was obtained by faith and not by works of the law. Paul goes on to explain the circumstances surrounding Abraham's faith, but before doing that, he calls upon another great example from the Old Testament, David, who was the king of Israel and whom God described as a man after his own heart. Two great men of God, in other words, Abraham and David. Let's have a look at verses 4 through to 8. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. As the book of Genesis speaks of Abraham as being justified by God, or having the righteousness of God reckoned to his account by faith and not by works, so too does David in the psalm speak of the blessedness of the righteousness of God being imputed to the sinner's account apart from works of the law. Note, that I don't want you to get confused about all these words, counted in verse 3, reckoned in verse 4, imputed in verse 6, so that's counted, reckoned, imputed, they all come from the same Greek word, they all mean the same thing. So you have the righteousness of God imputed to your account, reckoned to you, or you are counted as being righteous, it all means the same thing. Looking at verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. The blessedness that is spoken of has nothing to do with external circumstances. I think uh, we, hopefully, we, we all know that in this church. But a lot of churches seem to be a little bit confused, to say the least, about what being blessed is all about. Is it about your health? The man who is blessed, is it about health? Certainly Christians are less likely than the general population to contract STDs, for example, or smoking-related diseases or liver disease through excessive alcohol consumption and various other afflictions that result from fulfilling... uh, unhealthy and sometimes outrightly sinful pursuits. Even so, Christians do suffer health problems. We know about that, don't we? And those problems present opportunities to glorify God in that situation, even in a hospital ICU. Blessedness has nothing to do with having money in the bank, but it has everything to do with having treasures in heaven with the greatest treasure of all being who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The slum-dwelling Christian in Mumbai is every bit as blessed as the Christian who lives in a mansion. It has nothing to do with being popular. I'm glad about that. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ said to his apostles, if the world hates you, Ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. What Jesus said to his apostles there would certainly also apply to any Christian who is engaged in the proclamation of God's law and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such people do not endear themselves to a world in which people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You'll know that if you speak to people about Jesus. It's a conversation killer, isn't it? Unless God is working in that person that you speak to. Then there is the assortment of heartbreak and sorrow, which is common to everyone in this fallen world. Being blessed by God provides no immunity from such things. Although Christians can testify that God provides strength and comfort in those times. The blessedness that is spoken of in verse 6 is about everything being well between you and God For example, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who have a broken and a contrite heart, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed. Blessed are they that mourn, people who mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. Can you see that being blessed has nothing to do with your situation in this world? Rather, it's a matter of the heart. It refers to people who have acknowledged and confessed their sin and they have been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are truly blessed, whoever they are and whatever their circumstances. As for without works, at the end of verse 6 there, That means you are not saved and justified by your good works. Rather, you are saved and justified for good works. As was seen in the last verse of chapter 3, where it is written, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. When you have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you go on to show practical love for other Christians as unto the Lord, what are you doing? You are establishing God's perfect law of love. Look at verse 7 in chapter 4, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What what Paul is doing there, he's actually quoting David in Psalm 32 and verse 1. He's done this a lot, hasn't he? Have you noticed in chapter 3, he quoted Old Testament scriptures many times. And that tells us that the righteousness of God being imputed to people's accounts, that's nothing new, it's not some New Testament thing. It's always been the way. People being saved and justified by faith and not by their works. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness that's being spoken of there? Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. We all know that we're forgiven as Christians, but what does it actually mean? The same Greek word that is translated forgiveness in verse 7 is also translated leave and forsake elsewhere in the New Testament. And what that means is that forgiveness relates to an action that causes a separation. Forgiveness causes a separation or it relates to a separation. That separation is clearly illustrated in the Old Testament Day of Atonement where the scapegoat was released into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the Jewish people. That was a signpost to the cross of Christ, where the Lord laid upon his Son the iniquity of all who trust in him. I find Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 very helpful as a reminder of how forgiveness for sin was actually achieved. In that verse Paul said in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So every time you, when you think of forgiveness you think of it or you ought to think of it as redemption through his blood. I'm so thankful to the Sunday school people for presenting that verse as a memory verse. We can see in that verse that forgiveness equates to the crosswork of Christ and his sacrificial death. Which resulted in that separation from sin. When he bare our sins in his body on the tree. Spurgeon spoke about our forgiveness or separation from sin when he said. Sin is removed from us by a miracle of love. What a load to move, and yet it is removed so far that the distance is incalculable. That love was manifest in its fullness at the cross. With regards forgiveness or separation from sin, David said in Psalm 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far have he removed our transgressions from us talking about forgiveness there and praise God for that praise God also in verse seven the sins of the man who is blessed are covered we see that there whose sins are covered taken away covered different ways of looking at forgiveness It means that they are covered over or they are concealed with the righteousness of God. As it is written in Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. God has covered you with the robe of righteousness, dear Christian. I trust that you are greatly rejoicing in the Lord, for he has covered you with his righteousness. Why is the man, well, let's read verses 8 to 12. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our Father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So, I'll ask the question again. Why is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin blessed? The man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin, but rather he imputes his righteousness, why is he blessed? The answer is because the righteousness of God is imputed to him. His sin is not imputed to him, but the righteousness of God is imputed to him. Dear Christian, you are blessed because you're forgiven. The righteousness of God has been imputed to you and your sin has been Laid upon the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that you didn't do a swap with Jesus. I've heard it said before, I've probably said it myself in the past, that I did a swap with Jesus at the cross. Works. Immediately you start saying that, you're into a religion of works. You didn't do anything at the cross. God did it all. You didn't do a swap with Jesus, you had no part in it. No part in securing your salvation at all. God laid your iniquity upon his son and God imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. God did it all. Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish and to God be the glory. We can consider David the man after God's own heart he had an affair with another man's wife she became pregnant david arranged for her husband to be killed in the front uh, in the in the front line of the battle that was going on at the time a fearless soldier fighting for his country what did david his king do he had him killed in the battle so david he committed adultery and murder God sent his prophet Nathan to David and David said to the prophet Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said unto David the Lord also have put away thy sin thou shalt not die David most certainly knew that he in no way deserved any favour whatsoever from God and that his forgiveness and his blessedness were entirely by the grace of God. Certainly no works involved in that, unless you consider adultery and murder as works of the law. Nevertheless, there were consequences for him during his earthly sojourn. Because of his sin, there were consequences for him, terrible consequences, as indeed there are for all Christians. If you truly belong to God, you don't want to sin. You abhor sin. You hate sin. You want to do that which is pleasing to God. That characterises a Christian. But you know that uh, once saved, always saved. You are covered with the righteousness of God. God is not going to take that righteousness away. Your sins have been, you've been separated from your sins as far as the East is from the West. But nevertheless, there are consequences, aren't there? When you, as a Christian, sin. Just like there are for others. Perhaps, well not perhaps, more so. When others sin, they couldn't care less. And they just hope they don't get caught. But when you, as a Christian, sin, you sin against God. It's like David. David said to the prophet Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's terrible, isn't it? How can you sin against the God who loved you and who gave his son the Lord Jesus Christ, to be your sacrifice for sin. And there are consequences. Verse 9 takes the form of a question and the following three verses furnish the answer. Let's look at the question again. Verse 9. Come if this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Sticking with the context of the passage, which is always a good idea, we've already seen that blessedness refers to being forgiven and being justified by God, not by works, but by faith in Jesus. So, does that kind of blessedness only come to those who are circumcised in their flesh. That's a good question for self-righteous Jewish hypocrites who may well refrain from boasting about being Jews, they may well refrain from boasting that they keep all of God's laws, but they still consider their circumcision of the flesh to be their righteousness before God. Back in chapter 2 verse 28 and 29 Paul has already said for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. As such, he has made it perfectly clear already that what matters is not having circumcised flesh, but rather having a circumcised heart that is filled with faith in Jesus. Now Paul presents the example of none other than the highly esteemed Abraham as, as someone who was justified by faith long before he was circumcised in the flesh. This is the important thing to grasp He was justified by faith long before he was circumcised in his flesh. And that's very evident in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, I read earlier, it is written, And he, that is the word of the Lord, brought him forth abroad, he brought Abraham forth abroad, and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars, or count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Abraham was an old man, he didn't have any children. So shall thy seed be. All the stars in the sky, too many to count. And he believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Very important, that last sentence. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Or he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Therefore, Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith when he believed the promises of God. And then sometime after Abraham believed and was justified, he had a son called Ishmael according to Genesis chapter 17 verse 25 and 26 Ishmael was 13 years old when he and Abraham were circumcised in other words Abraham believed and received the righteousness of God it would have been at least 14 years before he and Ishmael before he was circumcised in the flesh Even though circumcision never justified anyone, it can be seen in verse 11 that it was far from meaningless. I think we've already seen that anyway, that it 's not completely meaningless. Look back at verse three uh, sorry, chapter three and verse one. What advantage then have the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? It doesn't say none. Paul says, much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of god so we've already seen that it's not a completely uh, pointless exercise that's for sure for one thing circumcision of the flesh was ordained by god that's that tells that should tell us that it's not meaningless also it was an outward seal of the righteousness that was by faith and which God had already already graciously imputed to those, in particular Abraham, who believed. It says that in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. It was a sign and a seal to him, the circumcision of the flesh a sign and a seal of the righteousness that was imputed to him at least 14 years earlier. It's when there is no faith and no imputed righteousness that circumcision avails nothing. Circumcision of the flesh as a sign and a seal, is helpful when considering water baptism, which is something that we as Baptists ought to be particularly interested in. For example, let me just quote some things to you now. Question 69 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, How is it signified and sealed... To you in holy baptism that you have part in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The answer given is thus that Christ instituted this outward washing with water and joined therewith this promise. That I am washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul that is from all my sins as certainly as I am washed outwardly with water, whereby commonly the filthiness of the body is taken away. So the washing of water, uh, the outward washing of water, it signifies that internal washing that takes place. The New Testament commentator, Henry Alford, equated New Testament circumcision with Old Testament baptism. I've got that the wrong way round, haven't I? Old Testament circumcision with New Testament baptism when he said, so also baptism is called sometimes the seal of the font and often in the fathers simply the seal of the righteousness to stamp and certify the righteousness of faith. Then there's another New Testament commentator William Hendrickson who said circumcision was also a seal to Abraham it was a guarantee of the trustworthiness of God's promise it meant that this patriarch could depend upon it that in the way of faith and the obedience resulting from faith the righteousness of Christ was reckoned or imputed to him. Signs and seals are very valuable. To be sure, it is possible to overestimate their significance. In and by themselves, these signs in the old dispensation, the bloody ones of circumcision and Passover, in the new, the unbloody ones of baptism and the Lord's Supper, do not bring about justification or, in general, salvation. However, they do indeed signify and seal seal it in the manner already indicated and is not that a source of comfort. The rainbow does not save mankind from being swallowed up by a flood but it does signify and seal or certify that God will never again drown the human race. It's worth remembering that in the Bible people were baptised at the time of showing repentance towards God and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ or else very soon afterwards. For example, in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through to 48, it is written, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed ...were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we... And he commanded them to be baptised in the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They believed. Uh, By implication there was repentance there. And Peter commanded them to be baptised in the name of the Lord. With that in mind. Baptism signifies that a person has been washed in the blood of Jesus. And hence. Ananias said to Paul, after Paul had been wonderfully saved on the road to Damascus, saved and justified by God, Ananias said to him, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptised, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Also water baptism seals or certifies that the person being baptised has been in. Uh, internally sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as Baptists our church firmly holds to the belief that only legitimate candidates the only legitimate candidates for water baptism are those who already have the righteousness of God imputed to them through faith in the redemptive work of Jesus therefore and I finish with this repent, trust in Jesus as your saviour from sin, receive his righteousness and be baptised as someone who is truly blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Amen.